Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 385. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 385 you're listening to. My guest today is self-described lucky bastard, Grammy-winning engineer Richard Dodd, who's worked with Tom Petty, George Harrison, Roy Orbison, Mike Moran, and a host of many others. You can read more about him at richarddodd.com. That's D-O-D-D. And this is part one of a two-part interview. Usually when I do an interview, it's typically an hour. But with Richard, we just kept talking. Hour one passed, then hour two, then hour three. So we decided to split this into two episodes. So this is part one you're about to listen to. And I very much look forward to you hearing it. Richard is a fantastic individual to talk with, with loads of experience, who's greatly respected in our world. And uh, yeah, Richard Dodd coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about the role of gear. I was watching um, Mix with the Masters. I subscribed to the video series, and I was watching Atticus Ross from Nine Inch Nails talk about a song. And I love it when the people in video series like that interject their personal thoughts and opinions, and they do many rants, if you will. Uh, there's, there's a few of those on Mix of the Masters that I really enjoy. And I, because I like hearing the, you know, whether you agree with them or not, strong opinions of, uh, people in our field. I love hearing that because it gets me to think about those topics. And one of the things that Atticus was talking about that really struck a chord with me as he's, you know, going through the Pro Tools session and talking about the tune he made a comment offhand. He just said, you know, it's, it's not really what's going on in here with all the gear and what's happening in the computer. It's what's coming out of the speakers. Everything else doesn't matter. Does the emotion of the music strike you? And that's more of the goal. Whatever you got to do, you know, in the computer, outside the computer with the gear to get to that, great. Doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. Doesn't matter if things are, you know, uh, out of control or clipping or done wrong is, you know, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but that struck a chord with me. And it made me think that it's so easy to buy gear, right? If you've got the money, of course. And there are people, there are people that make the buying of the gear the more important thing. And I'm not necessarily of that opinion. Uh, in fact, I'm against that idea. I think it's more important to impress our clients with results rather than gear. It's easy to fill a room up with a bunch of gear and make a big deal out of it. You know, um, I worked at a studio at one time and the owner said, yeah, yeah, just put that piece of gear in the rack. You don't even have to hook it up. It's, it's, you know, it's FDO for deception only. And I was like, huh, okay, yeah. 
sure, let's let's put up a bunch of gear and blow them out of the water with that. But as time went along and, you know, I started to work and, and get more mature about the whole thing, I realized, yeah, we're at a point where, sure, those first impressions of fancy studios can wow a client, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how fancy the studio is or how much gear there is. If, if the result coming out of the speakers does not impress, who cares, right? So I think my preferred method would be to get the gear you need to get the job done. If you need a piece of gear to do a particular thing, great, go get it. But at the end of the day, put all of your efforts into achieving the results. In, once again, impress with results. Don't impress with gear. Artists, you know, in, as far as music is concerned, I just don't think they give a shit about what it takes. Nobody's ever said, what are you, what are you recording on? What, you know, what's the gear? What are you using? Nobody ever asks. You know, unless it's like a weirdo kind of mic, you know, like um, I, when I had a studio in Emeryville, my studio partner and former WCA guest Josh Roberts had acquired a, uh, a Neumann, uh, I think it was a CMV 563. It was, you know, the, like the lollipop looking mic. And that's a very unique looking mic if you've never seen one. So, you know, of course, those singing into it immediately want to know, well, what's the story behind this? This is kind of interesting. And, you know, in those cases, sure. But 9.9 .9 times out of 10, I don't think anybody ever asked me what it is that we're using and why we're using it. They just don't care. What they're looking for is the result, right? So if your priorities are centered on getting gear just to impress the client, uh, I would suggest strongly you do what you want to do, but I would suggest strongly that you reconsider your priorities. Make your priority the results that the client really wants to get. As usual, I always say, you know, whether you're in film, music, etc., doesn't matter, video games, give the client what they need to feel good about the project, to feel right about the project, because that's, at the end of the day, that's the most important. Now, of course, get the gear that you like to use that helps you do the job right so i'm not saying you know run your run your gear list by your clients no don't even worry about that buy the gear you think you need to do the job and get it done and once you got it put your purchases on hold and bank some of the money that you can make doing your job and then at the end of the year when uh, a purchase for a tax write-off might help you Maybe then take a look at what your whole the holes in your setup are, because that whole you know, like you know impulse purchase thing, man, that'll bite you in the ass. So yeah, that's about it. I could run this one into the ground and I won't, but in fact, I probably already have run it into the ground for you. I'll just repeat again: impress with results, don't impress with gear. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. Richard Dodd, part one, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. We have a lot to talk about, a lot of ground to cover. So I'd like to get a little background on you by asking, where did you grow up? Uh, eventually, I will grow up, no doubt. <laughs> My life started in Luton in Bedfordshire, England, which is a town 30 miles north of London, some say that the best thing to come out of Luton is the M1, which is a motorway. 
<laughs> but myself and my two friends, Peter Coleman and Ashley Howe, who all went to high school together as well, formed a band there. And funnily enough, we all ended up in the music business. All of you. And uh, both of those are very successful. <laughs> when you were growing up, did you play an instrument? I attempted to, yeah. I was the member of the band that was no good. All I could do was sing. Yeah. So I got relegated to singer. You know, they, I tried everything, even bass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought fewer strings would be easier. Didn't quite work out. So I got nominated as singer, which I was okay at. And were your, were your parents, did they frown upon you singing or did they encourage it? They had no idea I was doing it. Oh. It was just a school band. It was nothing too serious. We did a few gigs and some of those were just memorable. <laughs> we actually got paid once to not do the second set. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely chose a different course. It's funny though how things work out like that. When did you first discover that you were interested in recording or things of that nature? When we decided as a band, 14-year-olds, to record an album, because Peter, Peter Coleman, fame of Blondie and Knack and all the rest, his dad had a tape recorder, seven and a half, reel-to-reel, two-track, Simons. Mm. Yeah, had knobs on the front stuff with words I didn't know called bias and erase and stuff like that. It was quite cool. So we uh, investigated what you could do with a tape machine and we realized that we could add by taking the output of the one we'd already recorded, the track we'd already recorded and mixing it in with a newer recording, we could build up and do sound, what was known as sound on sound. We recorded an album, we wrote some songs. And, and this an was album. like, this was at like at 14, right? Started at 14. I think it was about, we were in late 15 before we finished it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's as and when. You've got to write a song. You've got to be all available. Wait till his parents have gone out and all sorts of things, you know, before we could actually do it. So it was fun. Do you have that record to this day? I don't think so. I couldn't mm -hmm. put my hands on it. We had 20 copies pressed. We were that confident. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty remarkable to think that we did it. We finished it by the time we were 16, because Peter got a job at CBS in Theobald's Road in London. And remember having somebody cut that for us there. So it was a long process. Wow. Did your experience in, in recording that record, did it kind of light the fire in you about the process of recording? I think it did. It certainly was intriguing. It wasn't a magical like bell going off or anything. Mm. It was just a case of, yeah, there's, there's that too. But I was being pressed, you know, I was encouraged by my parents and those that would be coming from a very working class, poor, in fact, family, living in what we call council housing, we call government housing. The idea was that every dad wants their kids to do better, inverted commas, than they did. Mm -hmm. My dad's a production worker at General Motors in Luton and uh, called Vauxhall. And my brother, who was seven years older than me, he was a skilled toolmaker already, been you know, that much older. And so I was encouraged to go into that. I actually got a, <laughs> an interview at the factory that 
again, Peter Coleman. His dad was head of one of the departments of the British Aircraft Corporation in Stevenage, where they actually they made the nose cone for the Concorde and Bristol wow. Bloodhound ground-to-air missiles. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> and his dad was in the electronics department. But he told us of some vacancies they're going to have as apprentices. So four of us, including Peter, went to apply for two jobs. We naturally assumed that Peter would get the job because his dad worked there. And Peter didn't get the job. Peter was the most talented member of the band, without any doubt. He got that job at uh, CBS in Theobald's Road, just as a gopher and such. And then went on to expand his career to all these number one on platinum records. Was Peter a big influence on you? Yes and no. Yes. Peter was the one that had the musical talent. And as far as engineering, when we both found ourselves as engineers, I think he had the more aptitude for sound Mm -hmm. than any of us. Yeah, he had his career. And eventually, I decided I didn't want to be so much like Peter. I better find out what I am. So I did. And what would you consider your first professional recording gig? where you were literally being paid and and there was a level of seriousness to the session. Well, what happened was I actually got the job at the British Aircraft Corporation by default. I didn't get enough qualifications from school. Mm. I passed their interview, but I didn't come up with enough qualifications. In those days, the actual student was the last person to find out what grades they got. (laughs) Their employers... Their potential employers got the grade results first, and we found out through them. It was a very odd secondary education, yeah. But apparently I impressed them enough that they asked me back for a second interview, even though I didn't qualify with grades. They had their own test, and they wanted to make sure that the results of the test of theirs, their test, were right and not just off the charts. So I went back and they gave me a second test, and they offered me the job based on not only was I the highest scorer of their test, but I aced it twice, two different tests. Wow. Yeah, it's because it was based on life and logic rather than when was the Battle of Hastings, 1066. <laughs> but anyway, you know, I couldn't recall stuff like that when I needed to come to a test. I was useless. I remembered it all after the test, but during the test, during the exams, I was useless. I hadn't yet found one of the things I realized was absolutely necessary, the cojones, as it were, in any given situation, you know, you've got to put up or shut up, you know? And in the recording industry, as you know, it's all about that, every aspect. And eventually I got that. But anyway, sorry to digress, as I am, Peter got this job, Ashley, Ashley Howe, again, very successful engineer, and multi-award winner in TV sound and post-production. Ashley went and thought, if Peter can get a job in the music business, in the studio, so can I. So Ashley did it the hard way. He knocked on every studio door, called them up, wrote them letters asking for a job, and everybody turns it down. You know, there's just no jobs. One day, though, he happened to knock on the door of Studio Lansdowne in Holland Park, Unfortunately, it's gone, a magical studio. And they just fired someone. So they said, well, come on in. 
So they auditioned him, as it were, and he got the job. A few months after that, I was already working at his British Aircraft Corporation as an apprentice in electronics and engineering. Mm. He said, Richard, he said, I know of a spot at another studio. You should apply for it. And I did. And I got the job. You see, with Ashley working at Lansdowne, he'd be working with bands and they wouldn't finish till two in the morning or whatever. So on a Friday, I'd get on the train from Luton, go up to London, wait for the session to finish. And then Ashley and I would get the eight tracks out and start fooling around with all the tapes, you know. And one of the bands was Uriah Heep. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> and with these great guitar solos. So we'd mix just the guitar solos and we ended up editing them together because basically they're all in the same key. And we had this like nearly three minutes worth of continuous guitar solo. And you know, we'd heard this phasing thing and stuff. So we worked out a way of doing it. And uh, so we had to get creative with the edits as well to make it flow. It was some of them from memory. It was brilliant. Fortunately, it was, the tape isn't around anymore to disprove me, but it was brilliant. Mm. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> the problem was, though, of course, we couldn't really take it home because neither of us had a professional tape machine. But Ashley got hold of a Grundig three and three quarter machine, which again mm -hmm. didn't quite help. So we had to work out a way of making a three and three quarter tape when at the studio you only had seven and a half, 15 and 30. And we'd made this tape at 15. And so we worked it out how to make a three and three quarter tape. Yeah, it was, it was fun. Were cassettes around at that time yet? Yeah, they were. I don't think we ever considered a cassette worthy of having music on it. <laughs> yeah. This is like 69. Cassettes were available about, what was it? 67? Yeah. So, I mean, there were little mono things and who had them? I had a little mono Philips, I think it was but sounded like crap and lots of wow. Eventually they got the music on cassette to be pretty good, but it wasn't then. Eight tracks were the thing that you used for transportable music. Ah, uh, that's right. That preceded that. Yeah. So you and Ashley, would, how often were you, were you doing these, these like late night or early morning, I should say, sessions of messing about with? Well, at least every Friday, at least every Friday sometimes Saturday, because I had my Monday to Friday job. And eventually we'd go back to that thing. I had the call. One of the tape ops at Lansdowne was asked to move to another studio. And he turned it down because he was just about to be elevated to engineer at Lansdowne. So Ashley said, well, go and apply for the job. And I thought about it and I knew my parents wouldn't want me to do that. Plus, at British Aircraft Corporation, I was an indentured apprentice. That's like signing up for the military because yeah, 21 was the legal age. So you'd been indentured by your parents to serve five years at which you come out as a qualified person. And I was earning probably the then dollar to pound equivalent of about maybe $10 a week as a wage. Yeah, it was interesting, but it wasn't... Hmm my life. You know, I was really doing it to satisfy my, my dad and my brother, and I didn't know any better. But then I'm talking to Peter and Ashley, and they said, well, go for the interview. They'll ask you lots of things. It will only be two questions that matter. 
And we can tell the answer to those. So I thought, well, there's some great technical insight I'm going to learn here. And um, basically, they said that two things that studio managers really care about. What sort of music do you like? And I was about to say, well, I like, he said, no, no, no. He said, the answer is everything, right? And do you have any other interests? I'm thinking, what other? He said, the answer is no, none. No, right. So basically, they want you to be available 365 days a year, 24 hours a day to do anything. That's your criteria, that and two hands and eyes and ears. Yeah. So I got the job. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You answered the questions correctly. I answered, and they did come up. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so then I had a hurdle of getting out of my indentured service, and I went to the head of the department and said, I want to leave. He said, you can't. Simple as that. You can't. Forget about it. So um, I had to think of a way of leaving. So fortunately, in the education there, which was very, very good, they had a stores department where they stored highly accurate measuring devices, very expensive, mechanical, you know, height verniers, vernier gauges, things they called slip gauges, which basically sets of pieces of metal that are precisely what they say they are. Yeah. If it says it's a quarter of an inch, it's plus or minus nothing. It's quarter of an inch. So it's something you could measure by. So you'd have to sign these out with your little chits so they know got them and then bring them back and they'd be checked. So I said to him, well, how about if I signed out some vernier gauges and some slip gauges and I sort of welded them together? Would, would I be fired? <laughs> he goes, well, yeah. I said, well, how about we don't damage the vernier gauges and the slip gauges? I said, and you just let me leave. So he said, okay. And uh, I got to leave. Wow. So I got off and then I had this thing of dealing with my parents. And my dad was absolutely 100% against me doing this. My mother was, you do what you feel is right for you. And because of my mother, she said, convince my dad to let my brother, my seven-year-old brother, decide. And my dad was good with that because he knew that my brother had already gone through all this and now he's a skilled man. And so my dad agreed to let my brother decide. My brother said, let him do it. So my dad was like freaked out. What, what do you mean? He said, Dad, he said, the other day, he said, they had me teaching a machine how to do my job. This was CNC, you know, as a skilled man. And they had the early days of computers making note of all the things. He said, he said, one day, he said, they're going to have machines doing this job. So he wow. said, let them do it. So I did. That's awesome yeah. that your brother did that and was able to like look ahead and see that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because... He could also see, as he told me, he said, they're not very good. He said, you, you have to slow down for the machines, he said. <laughs> but um, he said, but one day they'll get it right. So I guess what I'm not really clear about, about this arrangement with the company, like this indentured servitudes type thing, does that even exist anymore? I'm sure it exists in some format. I don't know that there isn't... That seems so strange. A get-out-of-jail-free card or something that goes along with it on both sides. If you think about it, I guess the medical sphere is somewhat similar in so much as you have to get qualified and then you have to do a residency and then you're obliged to do something in right. some cases to either pay for or to finish your qualification, you know. But 
in Britain, there's a possibility that that type of indentured thing still exists. Of course, in the military, it yeah. does. Okay. Okay. Yeah. There we go. I bet you felt trapped there for a, a moment. You know, like I say, I, I was still just 16 going into a fifth year of high school. Still meant a 16-year-old was out into the workforce. And I was like a year ahead anyway. So I'm, I wasn't of age until the end of the school year I was in. So I was the young person in the graduating class, yeah, literally by a month. But I went into work and I think by the time I'd been there only 10 months, I was now in a studio in London and I was just about to turn 17. Wow. Pretty good, eh? Wow. <laughs> it's a different world. I think today's method is a lot better, a lot more sensible, mm -hmm. the more education, but uh, I don't know it's as much fun. Yeah. So what was the trajectory of your, of your time in studios while you were still in England? What were your experiences as an up-and-coming engineer? Well, there's two ways I could answer that. That's that it's trying to recall what it felt like and in reflection what it was actually. What it felt like was the rabbit hole. It was a different world. Although, as I mentioned earlier, I was brought up 30 miles north of London. That's another world. In England, 30 miles, that's at least equivalent of 300 miles here in the US. In five miles in England, you can have a different dialect. I mean, a noticeable change of accent. And with 30 miles, they can tell exactly what area of England you come from within 30 mile radius, definitely. And when you look at London and you draw a 30 mile circle around the center of London, you can get some wonderful changes in accent and attitude and class. Britain at the time was very much a class led society. So when I got to London, again, answering your question, I had to face the world because it was a very insular environment where I grew up. Everybody was like me. We talked the same. And the circles I moved in, everybody had nothing or a little bit. And we knew of the people that had everything or a lot. It was no big deal. You know, one day I might get that. You know, it wasn't jealousy or envy. It was a goal, you know, target. But when I got to London, working in a studio, I was in a higher level of more affluent people, better educated, all of them, than I was. And they picked up on my accent. So I would be referred to as farm boy because I spoke like I had an accent like I was from the boonies, which I was, I guess. So I had to think about that. How was I going to respond to that? Was I going to be subservient? Was I going to be aggressive? Or was I going to try and change? So I decided that I wasn't going to be subservient. And if I were aggressive, I'd just be forcing myself out the door. So I decided to see if I could modify my persona to any degree. So I started to dilute my accent. And every syllable that comes out of my mouth, even today, is analyzed. So that I don't sound like where I'm from, except... I probably do. Hmm. But that was a conscious thing to try and fit in. And not to jump out of that time frame, but I would assume that when you came to the U.S., people here, I, I would imagine, couldn't 
pinpoint your accent to a certain region. They just thought, oh, he's English. No, no. With, I don't, I don't be, mean to be disrespectful, but when I came to America for the first time was mm -hmm. very late 70s, like 78, 79, and it was to Los Angeles. So I don't know how representative of America Los Angeles is in 1978 or 9, but people I met just general, ordinary, everyday people, pretty ignorant of the world. There's America oh, yeah. and other places that aren't America. That was general assumption. And if you were from England, they got England and London confused and the same place as far as they're concerned. When I'd say, no, I'm, I'm from Luton, is that anywhere near Liverpool where the Beatles are from? Do you, do you know the Beatles? Do you know the Beatles, right? Oh, my gosh. And we had another guy in here the other day. He was from England, too. You might know him. Like, yeah, there's only like then 60 million people. So oh odds are, yeah, perhaps I do. You know, Do you know the Queen? No, don't know the Queen. That was what I met in America. But what I also saw coming to America, going straying off, was I don't know whether you can imagine this, but someone from England, a working class kid from England, coming to America on a vacation, and the first place you land is Los Angeles. It's like walking into the movies. It was oh, yeah. providing the sun's out. Los Angeles is a movie set. When it rains, it's a piece of shit, but I mean, it looks awful. Yeah. But it, under other circumstances, it's just magical. It's a fantastic, magical place. And so cheap, you know, <laughs> over in America, I could get a carton of cigarettes for the equivalent of the price of a pack of cigarettes in England. And petrol, gas, was almost free. I mean, it cost nothing to live over it. I mean, to this day, America doesn't know what the real cost of living is. We're getting an idea when there's a problem in the world and it affects us over here. We get an idea of actually oh, yeah. what life is really like. But in America, everybody, right. with some obvious unfortunate exceptions, is so fortunate to be in America, such a great place. And we're mollycoddled and protected and subsidized to a massive degree because of the, well, because of the ingenuity of the people of America and their hard work and everything they've done to deserve where they are in the world. But realization of what the world is like and could be like for us isn't really rampant shall we say it's um yeah fantastic place hey our friends over at distro kid have created the distro kid app for android which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from apple and spotify edit release metadata upload new releases and a host of other features and remember wca listeners get 30 percent off your first year at distro kid and if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, 
because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Anyway, so coming to America and my part in the studio in, in England, many, many challenges. When the maintenance guy there, he ran his own little business building DJ consoles. David Hawkins, his name. He's a great guy, big guy, Australian originally. And he was very influential in my growing, as it were, because, again, I had to learn how to deal with a forceful character. He would send me on errands on the tube, on the underground, out to the east end of London, pretty rough part, where he'd get things engraved and enameled and whatever else he needed. And I'd have to go out there and do these errands. He would get fun in and getting used to do these horrible chores, jobs. Yeah, there was another tape of the studio. And I had to find a way of defeating his hold, as it were, his influence. So instead of waiting for him to tell me what jobs he wanted me to do, I decided on one day so he, to ask him if, if there was any places I could go for him, anything I could do. Oh, not today. And then 10 minutes later, Philip Lusher was the other engineer, assistant engineer, tape up. Philip, come here. And when you were going, I took the fun out of it, you know. I didn't, I just ah. accidentally found this way of changing the situation. And he knew, he wasn't dumb. He knew what I'd done. He picked up on it. Yeah. And I think he was like, clever boy. I think he admired it. I don't know. I'd have to ask him, I guess. But yeah, I don't think he was vindictive. I think he was having fun at our expense until we wised up enough to realize we didn't have to be that stupid. You know? <laughs> and so that was how I overcame that. The biggest battle was learning, obviously, the business. It, it's such a different thing. We were working on analog tape machines, multi-tracks. And the maximum we had when I joined, that just got eight track. It was a 3M M23, four electronics on top, four electronics below, one inch tape machine. One of the things it didn't have was any form of clock to know where you were on, on the reel. And we used to use a thing called a chinograph, a, you know, a marker pen, like black or white that you'd mark on the console. Okay. Like a Sharpie or a grease pencil? Grease pencil. Yeah. It had to be removable. And the backing of the tape was generally black or charcoal. So you'd use a white one and you'd mark, you'd have your own little code for where a verse would start and where a chorus would start. And you got more than a few goes at it. You can identify the second with two marks, one below the other, you know. So at the top would be a verse and in the middle area would be a chorus. So that 
you could feel with your fingers as you were rewinding what part you were going over. You could roughly find if that someone at the end of the song, someone asked you to go back to the second verse, you could kind of get there. Plus, you'd learn how long the machine was in rewind for how many moments of music had gone by. Then eventually they got the device called the Select Take. And what it did, it read the tack off of the idle wheel and presented it as a number. Huh. It's an arbitrary number. I mean, you could set it at zero at the beginning and you get up to like, I don't know, 3,000 or 4,000 or something halfway through the song. So you'd know the difference between the start of the song and that point the song was about 2,000 thingies and you could maybe get an idea. And it would have a return to zero function as well, which was a joke because it didn't know it got to zero when you're rewinding until it passed it. So then it would put the machine in the opposite direction and pass it again, going the other way. And eventually the distance would get shorter <laughs> until it finally it settled somewhere around about zero, which had slipped anyway. And that was no longer zero because the tape against the idler had moved, you know, the idler. So, but it was better than nothing in some cases. But that was it. But my, my first week there was unbelievable. I joined on a Monday and I was on a session as the assistant. And basically I was just doing whatever I was told to do. But for the first week I could learn, right? And I remember all the sessions were in a big book and in reception, start times, end times. And I was employed officially from 9.30 a.m. until 6 p.m., Monday to Friday, and from 9.30 a.m. until 1 p.m. on Saturday. That was my working hours. Outside of those hours, the first three hours extra, you got the same hourly rate. And then after that, the next three hours, you got time and a half. And after midnight and on Sundays, you got double time. So all sessions ended at 11.59. You know? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, you were still... Were you still living at home? Yeah. So you were taking the tube yep. back home yep. after every session? Absolutely. Ah. Yeah, there was, yeah, travel time, that was nothing to do with them. If you had to work until midnight and you've got a 10 o'clock session the next day, you were obliged to be in, in time to set up for that session. And even if you weren't working, you were obliged to be in at 9.30, regardless of the finish time, because that's when you're being paid. And so... It was uh, interesting. But don't forget, I'm 17. So this really doesn't really matter. Right. The only reason you needed to not work was to go home and change your clothes and bathe or whatever, you know. Otherwise, there is only work. You know, it was just so exciting. But this first week was weird because I came in the second day and I was on a session. And the session was due to start at 2 p.m. It was a band called Atomic Rooster. Yeah, it's a three-piece rock band. Because of my first week, I was allowed to arrive, because they worked late, I was allowed to arrive an hour before the session. So my second day, I arrived at one o'clock, and they said, where have you been? I said, well, I'm, I'm here for the... They changed the start time to 12 o'clock. Oh. You're, you're two hours late. You know, it's like, holy shit. And they made it quite clear that if I was ever late again, I'd be fired. If you're going to be late, don't bother. Hmm. And it was all my fault because we didn't have a phone or anything like that, telephone. So I had to ask my parents' permission to pay to have a phone put in the house so I could call to make sure that 
changes hadn't been made or they could call to tell me that changes had been made. So your family didn't have a, a home phone? No, no car or phone or anything like that. It's all bus and train. And yeah, I mean, we were nowhere near as well off as I am now. Right. They have everything. What we had was a great home, great family, fantastic parents. And I never knew we were poor because the parents are so great. They would give up everything for us kids. So yeah, never went to school dirty or hungry or anything like that. Right. You know, had the best possible start anyone could ever have in terms of influence and example. It's fantastic. Yeah, so back at the studio, I got over that thing. By the following week, I was on the chief engineer's session, and I'd been a lot of his sessions watching. And he turned around. I was sitting next to the tape machine. I'd given the job of being the tape operator. And he said, okay, so we're going to replace the piano. He said, track seven, second verse. I'll tell you when to go in. In other words, I was going to do the punching, or the drop-in week, yeah. the Americans punching at the time. And so, again, this is a way you find out. Of course, he's keeping a peripheral eye on everything I'm doing, making sure I've selected the right, correct track and stuff like that. And he knows that there's nothing on that track prior to when I'm meant to go in. So it's not like I, as long as I've got the right track, I'm not going to be erasing anything. And he'd give me a hand signal with his fingers like pointing down, bang. That's when you drop in. And then his whole palm up was drop out. So I did my first drop in and I did it. Acres of space either side to get it right or wrong. But I don't know whether you recall or have experienced that, but wow, that's a, you know, that's one of the life's important first times, you know. Oh, yeah. Stunning, the adrenaline. You know, it's just a dropping in a piano with nothing either side to erase. No, but my God, that was exciting. You're blooded, as they say in the fox hunting world. You've done it. So then it's a case of absorbing and learning. And then I was, I didn't realize at the time how fortunate I was because I've been going on for about six months and the studio decided they needed a more client attractive engineer to work there. So they poached an engineer from AdVision called Gerald Chevin. Short guy, good engineer, an asshole, really good engineer. And so I went from working with the other engineers including the chief engineer, to I was put on a Gerald Chevin session. And what a difference. He'd tell me to do something I'd never experienced before. And then when I gave him a blank look, he would just insult me like you wouldn't believe, you know, demean, insult. And then he'd do it in front of the client as well. You know, it's like, look at that stupid little puppy, you know, whatever. Those weren't his words that you could imagine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Nothing political, politically correct then. And again, I thought, well, this can't go on. I can't choose who I work with, but I can choose how good I am. So I got to a stage with him. He said, why, why are you so stupid? He said, you've been doing this for six months. He said, how come you don't know anything? <laughs> I said, well, I'd like to know. I said, but we're not allowed to ask questions, which is kind of true. Because the other engineers just shut up and I'll talk to you about it some other time. And that other time never came. He said, well, that's stupid. He said, how are you going to learn without asking questions? Well, I knew that, but no one was answering questions. So I'd ask him some things and then he'd say, oh, God, you don't know that. You know, like, how can you not know this? And so he really got up my nose, you know. But I got to a stage of working with him where he would say, I need, it's already done. Because what I realized also, he was good, 
but he only had one way of working. So he'd, he'd do everything one way. No ifs, ands, or both. It was his way was the right way, and that's the way he did it. So I could learn his method easily, and I knew what was coming next. It was so predictable. So I'd just be yeah. ready. Whatever he wanted, done. And how did he react to that? He didn't mind. Made his life easier. And in fact, again, you know, he helped me as well. Apart from making me get off my butt, as it were, and do something for myself, he, um, the studio was purchased by another company. And this incoming company had a production company, so they needed studio time. And the studio itself, commercially, as an independent commercial studio, was very profitable from 10 to 6, doing jingles and all sorts of stuff. We'd work our tails off. So they would throw open the studio time to their in-house producers from 6 p.m. onwards. And they would put a limit, like 11.59, so that the staff wouldn't have to be paid either a cab fare home because the trains didn't run or overtime, double time. And so Gerald did a deal with one of the producers that he would engineer until everyone had gone home. So he'd do from like 6 to 7.38 o'clock. And then I would take over as the engineer. But the session officially ended at 11.59. Gerald got paid till midnight, and he went home about 7.30. And I worked until before the cleaners came in, which is usually about 3 o'clock in the morning when the cleaners came in. So I'd be engineering from 7.30 p.m. until 2.30 a.m. I was the engineer. I'd only been doing it for like 10 months. I was engineering. You know, I was the only person, no assistant, just me. I was getting all yeah. this experience, no pay, because I only got paid till midnight as the assistant. Yeah, so it was a scam that Gerald ran, but he made money and I made experience, priceless. And I bet you learned a ton in that time period. Oh, sure, sure I did, yeah, because the producers had to be lenient and they, they weren't particularly bright anyway. They had to be lenient if I was a bit slow about something. I never wanted to be slow. In fact, I don't think I ever was. Yes, yeah, so the only drag was is that the session finished at midnight, which meant I qualified to be in at 9.30. Mm. So that's where Ashley comes in again. <laughs> <laughs> Good old Ashley. Yeah, because there was no train. So I'd get on the tube and go to Lansdowne, where at Lansdowne they had different rules. There's a better studio. And the client was always charged the cab fare for the staff if they worked past midnight. And so we, I'd sit around and go wait till his session finished and we'd share a cab home because he lived in Luton too. And then we did a deal with one of the cab drivers so that he, he would clock off of his cab thing and come around, pick us up, drive him home. So he'd make more money and charge us less. Sometimes he even slept in the car park and said, I've got to go back up, you know, You'd be here by 7.30 and I'll drive you up to work. <laughs> wow. So some, some days we even got a cab into work. But it was just a fantastic time. It was just amazing. Even if I did get a cab fare, it wasn't enough to get me 30 miles. You know, they, it was like a five-mile cab fare. That period of time, well, first of all, I know that it was difficult being berated by people that at that point in your, in your life, but it kind of kicked your ass, didn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely had a tremendous influence on me. But not everybody around that period was kind of, it was just the way, looking back, you watch the TV programs from the 80s 
like British crime programs, like the Sweeney or something like that. And you'd have the life's attitude reflected there that could be shown on TV. And it was actually a lot worse than that. Racism, being anti-feminist. It was just terrible by today's standards. But it was just the way it was then. Yeah. And I was the way I was then as well. I didn't. I probably joined in as much as anything else. I don't know, but I'd like to think I didn't. But who knows? You'd have to rewind my life and, and check me out, you know. But those were the social rules of the day. But not everybody was bad. There was a lady called Annie Farrow, and she was part of the air group, George Martin's air group, that did commercials, jingles. And doing jingles was kind of a girl's job. It wasn't on that side of it, dealing with idiots and clients. Best to have a woman do it. So she would have the job of overseeing the recording of the music, which is often brilliant. I mean, very clever, because nearly all the records, are the, the real clever people were the, apart from the musicians being of such a high standard, but the, the real musical brains behind everything were arrangers, and they found that they could make a killing doing jingles. So you'd have these really talented people doing this real menial job and you get some great, great jobs, great work. But you'd have Annie coming into the, our studio. I was the assistant engineer and you have to witness this whole male dominated, you know, what's a woman doing in here? You know? mm-hmm. And so she would like to influence the outcome from a technical point of view. She would, for example, we'd finished the basic track and we had a guitarist behind to add another part and I remember her saying to the engineer I need to make that different so he says well what do you want and she says well I kind of need it to be the same again so he thought here we go so he put the talk back down to speak to the guitar player and the arranger wasn't in the room at the time it's usually the arranger deals with all liaison between the technical and the musicians but this time she was there doing it So he says, Annie's got a request for you. Go on, Annie, tell him what you want. And so she was muffling her way through this thing, trying to describe what she wanted. And to be honest, it was bloody obvious what she wanted. So right behind her head was a patch bay. So I got on my chair the opposite side of a very small control room, took two steps over to the patch bay and pretended to do something. And right behind her ear, I said, double track. And she, without skipping the beat, she said, you know, Double track it. So like, oh, so we double track the guitar and it's what she wanted. She said not a word, nothing. And fine. On another occasion, I helped her again without making it known that I was helping her. Just the lingo of the session and thought nothing of it. I felt good. My mother had always told me you always treat women like ladies. That's right. (laughs) You know, it's part of my previous education. And so I didn't like the fact they were disrespecting her. She was a very nice person. And there was one day I'm in reception and Annie's in reception booking her next session. And she said, is Mike available on Tuesday? And the girl doing booking said, no, he's, he's not available Tuesday. He's available Wednesday. She says, oh, okay. Is Richard available Tuesday? So the girl says, well, Richard the tape up? She goes, yeah. She said, well, of course he is. Yeah, he is. She said, is the studio available? She said, yeah. She said, well, I'd like Richard to engineer the session on Tuesday. She didn't know I was there. I was in the hallway, as it were. I just could hear this conversation. And the girl's going, but Richard isn't an engineer. She said, it's simple. It's just a 
piano vocal. So okay, if you don't mind. So she gave me my first session, obviously as a payback. And it went okay. It went good. And from then on, she would make sure that she would book sessions when the actual engineer, Mike, wasn't available. <laughs> because I was apparently different in attitude, other people had noticed that one of the arrangers, he noticed as well. And he asked if I could be the engineer on a session. And so they said, you're sure. And it was a rhythm section, my first rhythm section, drums, bass, guitar, piano. So I thought, okay, come drum, bass, guitar, piano. The difference was it was on a Saturday. We booked it in on a Saturday. So the main engineer didn't want to do it anyway. So I, I got to do that job. And there were lots of other interesting things. We'd also just had a new console put in. And it was only commissioned on Friday, new Neve console. No one wanted to do the first real session, you know, without <laughs> trying it. Right. And so, you know, let Wonderboy do it because he discovered that Annie was avoiding him for lots of the easier sessions. He only got the tough ones. And so Wonderboy, me, I came in on Saturday and did my first four-piece session, which was stunning. The first playback, the piano player, seemed to be the leader of the, the guys in the studio. He came in and uh, we played it back. It probably sounded terrible, I don't know. But he leant over the back of the console looking straight at me when it was over and he said, what have you done to that piano? And I thought, shit, we had a beautiful 1890 Rosewood Steinway B grand. Fabulous piano. And I said, well, I did EQ it a bit. I said, and I've got a bit of compression on it. I said, but I, if we do it again, I'll ta I can take it off. And he said, no, he said, that's the best piano sounds I've ever heard. Oh man, you're, I can't imagine how you felt at that moment. Well, I, I thought he was, he was just being nice. But for me, I was just, like you say, cloud nine. But what it did do, he was very clever because it put the other guys at ease because they were kind of obliged to say like, yeah, drums sound good, Richard. Yeah, you, you. And all the time, this, this great arranger, Stanley Myers, I should have mentioned, the late Stanley Myers, he was just, he was a genius. He, he would write the scores on the cab on the way to the studio. And while he's listening back, he'd be doing the Times crossword and still point out every note that people did wrong, you know, while he was doing it. He was just, one of those kind of people. Yeah, one of those, you know. Anyway, so this, this piano player, one of the notable things about him, apart from being generous to me on that day, was his hair was so long. I'm looking at the back of him as he's playing the piano through the control window. He's almost sitting on his hair. I later found out that I should have known who it was. It was Rick Wakeman. Oh. Early days of session thing. So... That was that. So I thought we got through the uh, two sessions. We had a vocalist come in to sing live on a couple of songs as well. I found out that what we were doing was what was known as source music for a movie oh. starring Michael Caine and Elizabeth Taylor. The working title was Z and Co. I think it came out as X, Y, and Z. But it got better than that because at the end of those two sessions, Stanley said, so tomorrow, I thought, oh, we're working tomorrow. He said, we got strings at 10 and brass at 2. He said, then we mix. I said, pardon? He said, yeah, he's got string section at 10, the brass at 2, then we'll mix them. So this whole weekend, oh, it's a new machine as well. <laughs> new, new machine, multi -track. new console. Yeah, console machine. We started on the M56 because we were 16 track. we just gone 16 track. It was so weird. So we did that. 
And I did the strings and I did the brass and I mixed them. I also had to do, that's right, during that first day, my first two-inch edit. Shit. I mean, shit, punching in's hard enough yeah. when you're just starting, but doing an edit on tape. Yeah, two-inch tape edit on the master. You know, it's like, we know no backups or undo or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> you only had redo. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was quite a stunning, stunning. And I think I was, by this time, just about to turn 18 by then. Chronologically, this may not be accurate to the month, but that was about the time of my life. And after that, I came in the next day and chief engineer said, how'd it go? Did it all work? I said, yeah. I said, um, do you want to hear it? Yes, sure. He's expecting piano and voice. He gets his whole thing with rhythm section, strings, brass, the whole deal. And he was quiet after that. This was Michael, the engineer who, okay. Michael Whale, yeah. Yeah, he was had a little bit more respect for me after that. But that was too late because now I was I was on a roll. Wow. And and this is I mean, by the time you're playing Michael this this mix, you're eighteen, right? Mm-hmm. Damn. Just turned eighteen. Wow. Just you know, fast forwarding a bit because I, I do want to get a, a chunk mm-hmm. of your, your later years in there, but first off, how long did you stay in England? before you came to the US? Well, if I may answer indirectly. Yes, please. I was at that studio and by the time I was 19 and I was chief engineer, Mike left. Wow. I was chief engineer, I was already 19, but I was still 19 by the time I turned chief engineer. And based on that they couldn't deny it, I was doing 14 hours a day and the clients were just coming into the studio manager saying, he's amazing. He's so fast. So then the manager got me in and said, hey, you've got to slow down. You're costing me money. But you're also, you were also pleasant to work with, it sounds like. I think I was. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I realized that early on, I don't know whether these are realizations that were created by me or accidentally, I think I accidentally fell into some good things. Mm-hmm. I had such great respect for musicians and I so wanted them to be as comfortable as possible. And I knew that their main requirement was to go home, to get to the next session or whatever it was, was less about what they were playing and more about how they could be doing something better other than jingles and stuff. So I used to be efficient and they liked that. And I used to be concerned about, we only had two fallback systems, both mono. So you had a choice of this mix or that mix. The musicians. So a drummer had to put up with pretty much the same mix as a fiddle player, you know? Right. And just, I, I want to mention just for my younger listeners, if you don't know what a foldback is, that's basically, it's the cue system, the yeah. headphone mix. Headphone mix, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. I, I put myself back then, sorry. <laughs> Reliving. And so having the musicians on your side is paramount to any successful session because when they're happy, they sound better. When they sound better, you've got a chance of capturing a better sound. And then it all goes on from there. And you scratch their back, they scratch yours. Whether it's overt or not, you know, they didn't mind. Again, you know, just accidentally overhearing musicians come in, they walk in the door and they say, who's on the board? You know, or who's on the desk, we'd say. And they'd get the answer, oh, it's Richard. Oh, good. Okay. We'll be out on time. So different engineers at different studios had a reputation for either getting great sounds or being assholes 
or being slow or being fast amongst the musicians. And they didn't mind working with me, which was good. It helped me tremendously, musicians did. So that, that was pretty good. So to get towards your answering your question, I was chief engineer and I went to the studio manager and I said, we need 24 track. The clients want 24 track. They're, they're going to go out there at the studios unless we get 24 track. He said, you know how much that cost? I said, we've got to have 24 track. Everybody here agrees with me. In fact, if we don't get 24 track, I'm going to have to go somewhere else. So he said, no, oh, everybody agrees with you, do they? So I said, yeah. So he said, well, wait there. He called everybody in. He said, Richard tells me you're all going to leave if I don't get 24 track, which is not what I said. Right. So is he right? No, no, he's not right. Okay, right. So he said, there you go. He said, that's how much they think of you. So I'll get 24 track if and when I can make it work. So I said, okay, well, good luck with that. And I went freelance. You quit? I quit. Wow. What was the reaction? Well, they didn't think I'd really do it because I'm not the sort of person to just walk out. I said, I'll have to leave then, go some, somewhere else. So okay, well, you do that. You know, he was gambling that I wouldn't do it, and I did. Again, Ashley comes back into the story because Jerry Braun had built Roundhouse Studio, state-of-the-art studio, and Ashley was moving there. He said, why don't you come? Well, we can work in the same studio. It'd be amazing. And so I had an interview to join them, and he didn't want to pay me what I was worth. I went in. Because by then I'd been doing freelance and I was getting, I think it was actively getting four pounds an hour. Started at 12 pounds a week. Now now it's four pounds an hour. And I was actually charging five. But because the only clients I had were my existing clients, Mm -hmm. I gave them a 20% discount, you know. (laughs) Because, yeah, I was lucky that they paid me anything really. So I told Jerry Brown I wanted five pounds an hour. And he laughed. He said, no engineer gets five pounds an hour. So I'd heard on the rumor bill that Glyn John's got 12 guineas, which is nearly 13, 12 and a half pounds an hour. He said, well, you're not Glyn John's. I thought, I know that. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm worth at least half, you know. Right. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I mean, because Glyn John's, not that I'd met him, was thought to be the pinnacle of what you could achieve as an engineer, working with great artists and having great sounds. I didn't know what it was like. I'd heard rumors, but as far as I'm concerned, what he put out sounded great. So he's great. So that was my yardstick. I hadn't heard of George Massenberg yet or anything like that. So I did that freelance thing and it worked out. And Peter Coleman comes back into the mix. Peter, by now, had moved from CBS to Audio International, an independent studio, where he got to work with a client that I sometimes worked with, with Mike Chapman, Mike Chapman and Nicky Chin. And they had a producer working for them because they were songwriters at the time. And they had a producer called Phil Wayneman, who produced Sweet, did Funny Funny, Coco. And I was a tape op on Funny Funny and an engineer on Coco. Peter was the engineer on everything else, everything else that Mike Chapman did. So... Every week, it was a new number one from Mike Chapman and Nicky Chin, and Peter recorded it. I'm exaggerating, but it seemed like every week. Susie Quattro, right. Smokey, Mud, and then Blondie, and Nick Gilder, and The Knack, and Pat Benatar. And oh, yeah, I was, I was going to say Pat Benatar. So Peter moved to America, because they moved to America. So Peter moved to America in 78, 79. And my first visit was to see Peter. 
just to go over and spend a couple of weeks and visit some of the studios he worked in and stuff like that. So that was my introduction to America. But of course, you, you couldn't work in America unless you had a proper visa, which I didn't have. So I only visited as a tourist. And this was this was in Los Angeles. Yeah. yeah. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Richard Dodd here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. This has been, of course, part one. You can listen to part two in the next episode on episode number 386. So be sure and catch that. want to thank you for being here with me today. I certainly appreciate it. And remember, you can send me guest suggestions if you go fill out the guest suggestion form at workingclassaudio.com. I would appreciate that. That helps the show run as it does. But that's all for me today. I want to thank my crew, Anne-Marie Plo in the editing. Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the man of the hour every single episode, Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.